When it comes to handling finances, who's teaching your kids? Well, Matt Bell believes that if you're not teaching them what they need to know, they'll learn it from the culture and they may not learn what we want them to. Now, our guest this morning is the author of Trusted, Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God-Honoring Money Management. Matt, welcome to The Morning Conversation. Great to be with you. Yeah, looking forward to our time and our our topic specifically. What motivates you to kind of get into writing in the first place? It's something that I think kind of came naturally when I was a kid. Both of my parents were teachers. Mm. They were communicators. That probably was in my blood. And it's just, you know, you have kids, we have kids. You see some natural things come out out ways that God has wired us and 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 communication was something that it, it just it's something I loved from an early age. I remember I got involved in a retreat program in my teens and I loved to uh, speak at those retreats and um, so I've just always really loved the whole communication process. Hmm. Yeah so and Matt you just uh, released a book called Trusted Preparing Your Kids for a Lifetime of God Honoring Money Management. So let's talk about specifically we talked about you know why write but like why write that book? What did you see? What were you experiencing that said, you know what, I think this book needs to be written? Yeah. Um, Well, my whole story of coming to faith was uh, through money. God used money to Hmm. draw me into a relationship with Him. uh, As I like to put it, I kind of did this unintentional reenactment of the Bible's parable of the prodigal son. Hmm. um, Received an inheritance from an uncle when I was in my mid-20s of $60,000. Had good intentions with that money, but um, used it to create a dream job of traveling and golfing, writing a golf newsletter. But uh, and it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. Got to play Pebble Beach and some great courses, uh, but was not attracting very many paid subscribers, which seemed like a minor detail because I had this huge pile of money. But uh, two years after inheriting the money, I had twenty thousand dollars of credit card debt, wow. and you know I, I had just become so acclimated to that life and so blind to what was happening with the money that. When the actual money ran out, I kept funding it on on credit cards, mm-hmm. and it was a very humbling, life changing experience. It was ultimately what God used to draw me into a relationship with Him. It woke me up to my need to learn about money, and I've been studying ever since. The first church I went to had a stewardship ministry, which I had never heard of before. I've heard of churches asking for money, but I never heard about them teaching about money. And so, ever since that experience in my mid twenties, I've just been a sponge for all things financial, and especially what the, what the Bible teaches, and and the idea of helping kids get on a good path with money. Like I said, I made a lot of mistakes. um, And so I'm just, I'm really excited about all the potential good that God could do in and through young people who get on a good track with money early in life. Matt, as you you think about it, what's the risk to our kids if we don't invest in really training our kids financially? If we don't teach our kids about money, it isn't that they won't learn. Mm -hmm. They will learn, but they'll learn from our consumer culture, which has these strong messages of you don't have enough and even you're not enough, which has just been amplified through social media. So there's a risk, there's a really strong risk that if we're not the ones doing the teaching, the culture will be teaching them. Wow, that's a great point, brother. It's not like it's not going to happen. It's going to happen correctly, accurately, or incorrectly. Yeah, and I also think that there's so much potential here. Usually when you think about the concepts of compounding or exponential returns, we think in the world of investing, but think about all the different aspects of money. So you get a young person who develops 
develops a heart of compassion for some of the things that, that God cares about and backs that heart of compassion with some generous habits and practices, how God could multiply that over her lifetime of, and not just the tangible financial investment she makes in these causes, but but just in how her generous heart ripples out into her other relationships and how it infuses her life with great joy. There's just so much potential good that could come from a young person getting on a good track early in life. So, Matt, you touched on it a little bit earlier this morning, but I'd love for you to go back into, and we're in it, we experience it, we see it, but we also adapt to it and we get used to it, are the culture that always thrusting itself on us in in the culture's perspective of material things and money and the impact it has on our lives and our kids' lives. Help us kind of re-wake up to those forces that we need to be aware of and we need to help our kids be aware of. It is huge. The culture has a very strong impact impression on us, all of us, you know, I th- think about the word consumer. So mm. we hear that term so often that I think we've become comfortable with the idea of with that label. And yet it wasn't always true that we were called consumers. Back in the early 1900s, things changed a lot. And, and that's when people went from being described as citizens or workers to being described as consumers. And it was very wrapped up in a lot of things happening in the whole marketing world at that time. So I like to draw the distinction between being a consumer versus being a steward or manager or wise builder, as as the Bible talks about. And there are some really stark differences. So if I'm a consumer then I believe that I'm the most important person in the world. Life is about my pleasure, my comfort, my happiness. If I'm a steward of God's resources, I know that God is is the most important person in, in the world. My life is to be about Him, to be about glorifying Him, to living in relationship with Him, to honoring Him. If I'm a consumer, I believe it's money and things that bring happiness. But if I'm a steward of God's resources, I know it's relationships that bring joy in life. And if I'm a consumer, I believe I'm in competition. You know, that's kind of the driving force to have more more, more than I used to have, more than others have. I'm in a competition for more, whereas God's Word teaches us that that our lives are not about competition, but about contribution, about Mm -hmm. using our gifts and talents and passions to make a difference with our lives. And so, these may be kind of heady, abstract concepts, but they're really important for our kids, for us to understand who we were made to be and to live into that identity because our identity drives so much of our behavior. Matt, let's talk also about just contentment. I was looking at this magazine or something, and it was one of the first times that in that moment realized all of a sudden I had this discontentment with what I had that I didn't have like two minutes ago. And it was strictly because of the advertising I just exposed myself. How do we manage that? for ourselves and for our kids. Yeah, I appreciate your authenticity about that because we've all been there. We're there on a regular basis. And and that's how the, the marketing machine works in our culture is that it's to drive a sense of discontentedness so that we want to buy more and to try to fill that longing that, that we all feel. The strongest antidote to our consumer culture is gratitude, that if we can model that for our kids, live in gratitude, that's a really strong, powerful force that that, that works against this notion of discontentedness that is so prevalent in our culture, because it is so easy to make the mistake of, of thinking that, that these things are going to drive happiness. Things are not inherently good or bad. Money is not inherently good or bad. It's, it's what we do with those things. And if we can come from a perspective of gratitude, that everything belongs to God, it's to be used for His purposes, it's 
needs to be enjoyed as children of His, but He wants us not to make them first in our lives. And that's a really important distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love that the whole pushback against dissatisfaction with gratitude. Is there some yeah. wisdom too of just limiting our exposure to some of the advertisement and not just taking it in mindlessly? Yeah, for sure. In the book, I talk about these three roles, the gatekeeper, the teacher, and the role model. And the gatekeeper is the one that kind of sets the parameters. I mean, where are the parents? And there's a, there's a book that I've never even read, and yet it speaks to me about this. It's called Be the Parent, and that, that motivates me. So, we're the ones that set the parameters, set the rules. So, are we going to let our kids be on social media? What are we doing about screen time? I'm a strong believer that, that screen should not be in our kids' bedrooms, for example. There should be openness and accountability for those sorts of things. And we should help our kids navigate these messages in our culture. And so, when a kid is super young, they don't even know the distinction between programming and advertising messages. And those lines have been blurred a lot through just woven into storylines. So help them make the distinction between here's a marketing message and here's the content of the program, and then help them unpack messages that they're taking in. Are these things really real? Just help them unpack the culture because we have to live in the world, but the key is to not be of the world. So helping our kids kind of learn to not be at the effect of so much marketing that we all experience, but learn to interpret it and make wise decisions about it would be a good thing. So Matt, allowance or no allowance, that is the question. (laughs) So give us some kind of wisdom on allowance and how to maybe perspective on how to work that. It's a surprisingly contentious topic. Mm. There are parents that have very strong views on this, so we need to kind of wade into these waters (laughs) a little bit carefully. But, but, you know, some people say, well, you know, allowance, that, that word should never be spoken in our household because nope, in life, People won't just give our kids money, right? They have to work for everything that, that they receive. There are different perspectives on this. In, in our household, my wife Jude and I, we we did give our kids a small amount of money just because they're part of the family. And as you were just describing, they were required to do certain chores around the house just because they're part of the family. But the amount that we gave them as an allowance was was so s- small, really, that it gave them. You know, it was enough to get some hands-on experience with money, but it wasn't so much that they weren't motivated then to do extra chores to earn more money. We have some friends that have another system that I really like, um, and that is where they have they have mandatory no-pay jobs. That would be things like making your bed in the morning. They have mandatory four-pay jobs. That would be things like clearing the dishwasher. And then they have optional four-pay jobs. And what's kind of cool about their system is that if a kid's doing a mandatory four-pay job, but they do it with a bad attitude or they have to be asked three or four times to do it, that might turn into a mandatory for less-pay job or a mandatory for <laughs> no-pay job. And and so the, the key thing here is we want money in our kids' hands so that they're doing real things, making real decisions with money that's really theirs. And another key with the allowance thing or whatever you want to call it is that we want them to tie money with a job well done. So you're not just going to do that job half-heartedly. You're going to do that with a good attitude. You're going to do it with excellence. And then you'll be compensated for that job if that's a four-pay job. Otherwise, you might get less pay. Or as like I said, with our with our friends, it, it might turn into a no-pay job. So I think the important thing is to, to find a system that works for you and your spouse and then be consistent about applying it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And again, I, I like what you were some of what you were saying there. It does need to connect and help our kids get ready for the real world, right? So however we think yes. about it, I, I remember I have conversations with one of my daughters where it was like, okay, the real world isn't that you sit around and do nothing <laughs> and have a nice house and food and clothing and cars and all that stuff, right? So that's not reality. So right. we've got to be really careful that we allow our kids to experience reality in the home so that they're prepared for reality when they get out of the home. We were talking about allowance 
difference in, you know, pay for work and in the right ways and different ways of thinking about it. I think if I was doing this whole parent thing all over again, I probably would incorporate this also. I don't think we did because we didn't have that thought. But on a typical year, we're going to spend $200 on our kids' clothes. And so we, in a sense, give that to our kids and say, this is your clothes allowance for the year. If you buy one pair of jeans that cost 250 bucks, <laughs> those are all the new clothes you're getting for the next year. Right? So just as far as them learning to handle money well, you're going to spend it anyway on them, but just to kind of integrate their development. What are your thoughts about that concept? So important. I'm glad you're bringing that up. You know, that's something I learned from uh, another author, Mary Hunt, in her book, Raising Financially Confident Kids, where she talked about that very very idea, Stan, where you take something like clothing, that's a great starting point, and you say, we're going to spend, you know, maybe $25 a month on kids' clothing. Well, now we're going to give that money to them. And so we did that with our kids. They had an envelope. They put their $25 a month in that envelope. We would go clothing shopping with them, and they would have those envelopes with them. That makes it so much more more real than if we were just managing that $25 for them. You know, that's too abstract. But when it's in their hands, and like you said, they're making trade-offs between this expensive pair of jeans or versus, you know, two of these, those are real decisions. Those are real trade-offs that they're making. And now they're paying the money to the cashier. They're getting their change back. There's so much learning that goes on in that mm. process. I remember the first time we did that with our kids, it was so moving. Mm. <laughs> People think, oh, you know, it's silly to, to tear up about this, but I was watching them make these decisions in new ways. I mean, they'd been with us before the store, but but now it was so much more real that it was just powerfully moving to see them navigating these decisions. So I, I met another couple in writing the book that that took that that whole idea even further. Every year on their daughter's birthday, they would give her responsibility for another category. So it started mm, with clothing, went to personal care items, went to entertainment. And over time, she became responsible and making good decisions in all these areas. So I think that's just a great real world way of teaching kids about money. And the more real we can make it for kids, the better. Matt, you thought, wrote, interacted, had conversations quite a bit with parents and families around money. What's one of the biggest mistakes you feel like we as parents do in terms of money with their kids? The one that comes to mind would be doing too much for our kids. Mm. Especially when a kid's super young, the things they want, they're not very expensive. It's easy for us to, to buy these things that they want. And yet, I mean, sure, you know, it's not like we're going to never buy them a present or something. Of course, we're still going to be generous. But if we can encourage them and really make it a requirement for them to own more and more of this and, and purchase more and more by having to wait, by having to save over time, we will do them such a great service. Far better for them to start taking responsibility and, and taking the time. I mean, delayed gratification is one of the most powerful character traits. If they can learn to save over time to buy these things, it will serve them really, really well. So where does entitlement come from? And, and I asked that question because I had a friend of mine who had an actually a foster daughter who had never had anything. I would have thought that uh, she would have been great and thankful for whatever that she received. But she had a very strong sense of entitlement. It really surprised me. So that's one of the most important kind of ways of thinking for us to be intentional about trying to avoid in our kids. And it's hard. I mean, it's just in the air we breathe. It's in mm. the culture. You know, people say we don't really live our lives in an absolute sense. We live by comparison and they start to feel 
kind of entitled to these things. So I think if we can model that for our kids, that we're truly grateful for the things that we have, if we can encourage them as we pray with them, you know, living a life of generosity where where we're aware of the needs in this world. You don't want to use that in, in a manipulative way, but we just want to introduce them to the real world that in many ways, some of us are living in a false world because we're not regularly seeing people in a very different situation. So if we can bring our kids some awareness of that, that would be a good thing. And one of the things we've tried to do and to uh, foster a sense of generosity and a heart of generosity, and I, and I think it helps in this whole area of entitlement, is we've we've sponsored some kids in different parts of the world. One year, we, we sent some extra money for a birthday. And, and this child, Aziz, he sent us back a picture of what he bought with that extra money. He bought rice and he bought soap for his family. Wow. So again, we don't want to guilt our kids into it. We don't want to use it in a manipulative sense. But we want to just have that be part of the rhythm of our lives, that that we're aware and we're helping our kids be aware of kids that are living very differently in different parts of the world, even in our own cities. Matt, I love your thoughts about the differences from a personality standpoint with our kids. I've got a daughter who she does not spend money just on her own personality wiring wise. And I have you know, a daughter who spends a little more freely. It's more of a discipline for her. How do we think about that in terms of our kids? It's a fascinating topic. I think if you really study the way God has wired you up, and then as parents study how God has wired up our kids, it's fascinating. There's different temperament methods out there. In the book, I talk about probably the simplest one where four different temperaments, the sanguine and the choleric and the phlegmatic and the melancholic. And these are not, you know, one's better than another. It's, it's none of that. It's just different. It's it's how God has made us. And when it comes to money, there are certain financial tendencies that come with each of these temperaments. So you mentioned you have a daughter that's a real saver. So probably a primary phlegmatic temperament because phlegmatics tend to keep things. And so there's some good and bad in that. There's an easier experience with saving money, but there may be a, a difficulty in giving money. Right. And yet when phlegmatic temperament types have been kind of led by the spirit to give, they can end up giving very generously. Same type is kind of the outgoing life of the party and really enjoyable sort of person. That person financially, very generous, naturally generous, doesn't like to budget. They would rather be out with their friends than, than doing something analytical like that. It's fascinating to learn how God has wired us up, to learn to maximize our inherent strengths and put those to productive use. And it's helpful to learn to kind of manage around some of the inherent challenges that come with these different temperaments. I think most of us, when we start thinking about our kids, we go, okay, Okay, what does it mean to train our kids budgeting, spending responsibly versus like, no, actually, you may have a kid that's like too anal about saving and you need to teach them to lighten up, to be more generous, to enjoy. It's probably not if you we need to invest in our kids financially as far as their financial handling of money. It's how based on which kid we have and how they're wired. That's exactly right because it's not one size fits all parenting. But yeah, I think about, you know, our oldest doesn't care about fashion. We have to kind of beg him to update his clothing. <laughs> is his look, you know, kind of naturally wired to, to save. Our second is is more outgoing. What comes with that temperament is really interested in how he looks and the brands. And you know, it's fine to have the brands you like, but let's not pay full price. Let's get them on discount. It's difficult to kind of go against our natural bent in life, but it's helpful, you know, to not be at the effect of it, to understand it so that we can start to work with it. Well, Matt, this has been a really rich morning for sure. Thank you so much for the resource that you have put together to help us parents teach our kids about money. And thanks for sharing the morning with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Really great to talk with you.